This is Blankenship on Trial, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's podcast about former Massey CEO Don Blankenship and the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. I'm Scott Finn, Executive Director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We'll look at the evidence, the arguments, and why it matters. This is Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. After 31 days, the prosecution is coming close to resting their case against former Massey Energy CEO Dom Blankenship. And today we're going to talk about two main things, the securities fraud case against Blankenship and arguments for acquittal already coming from his defense. Joining us to discuss the latest is West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Ashton Mara. Hey, Ashton. Hi, Scott. And from Illinois, a, a coal mine in Illinois, is that right? That's right, Scott. We have former Assistant U.S. Attorney Mike Hissom. Hey, Mike. Hey, Scott. So, Ashton, we heard from three more witnesses this week, two of which focused on the securities case. Right, Scott. So the government basically put on their entire securities case Friday and Monday, and that includes two of the three counts that Blankenship is facing. The first witness, former Chief Administrative Officer John Poma, described Don Blankenship's involvement in drafting security statements kind of generally, and then his involvement in this specific statement that's in the indictment. That one came out two days after the Upper Big Branch explosion. The second was an expert witness who was basically doing Stock Market 101, This is how the stock market works. And that was followed by an explanation of how those investors' statements, those filings with the SEC, affect the market itself. And so remind me, this is about the statement that was made after the explosion that um, prosecutors say was was f- a false statement. That's what the, the whole securities fraud thing is about. Right. So this is about an SEC filing in which the company writes that they do not condone the violation of safety standards and that they strive to follow all safety laws. And basically, the government is saying that was a lie and that, it, that affected the stock market. And one of these experts was a guy called Frank Torchio. Torchio. Frank Torchio. And and he was talking about how four specific events in the days and months after Upper Big Branch explosion affected the stock price, right? Right. So he used these four specific events. He calls them key events that have to that that affected the stock market prices, basically massy stock prices. The first of which is the explosion itself on April 5th of 2010. He says stock value declined that day by 990 million dollars. The second, the day the SEC filing comes out, which in which Massey says they don't condone violations of safety laws. And that happened on April 8th, 2010. Stock prices recovered about 4% that day at the open, and then they kind of leveled off. The third is an NPR story from April 30th, in which Howard Burkus, who was on the first episode of our podcast, Howard reports that the DOJ is investigating, quote, criminal negligence against Massey. Stock values declined that day by 9% or a half a billion dollars. And then the fourth incident is May 14th, when the DOJ confirms that they're investigating willful criminal activity against Massey. The stocks decline again, more than 6%, or about $382 million. So there are some questions about whether this expert is trustworthy? There are. On on the cross-examination, which was very argumentative, what came out was that He had previously testified in another federal court case about the stock market using this same methodology, and the judge in that case ruled that his testimony was inadmissible, that there was no methodology used whatsoever for him to come up with these types of days. Um, Basically, 
you know, the defense has brought his credibility into doubt as an expert. That's all that they can do. Mm. And then we can assume that they call an expert of their own to refute everything that he said. So the thing they're questioning is whether or not he, he Torchio saying these events affected the stock prices in this way. And what's being raised is, well, your methodology may not work. Mm-hmm. And therefore, why listen to you? Yeah. And basically, another federal judge already said that your methodology was wrong. Why should it be relevant in this case? So, Mike, the final witness um, that we've heard from so far is an FBI agent, the one who conducted the investigation. Um, so what, what's the purpose of that? Why have that person end the trial? Yeah, well, the number one reason the government is doing that here is because they need to get, they want to get in front of the jury uh, a number of records. And, and an, a witness can testify as a summary witness to voluminous material. And so there are notebooks of materials, many notebooks of materials that this this FBI agent, it's FBI special agent Jim Lafferty, who's been has been investigating this case with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Charleston since the explosion, essentially. And they're using Mr. Lafferty, Agent Lafferty, to present this summary material to the jury. Now, sometimes prosecutors will call case agents, FBI agents or IRS agents, to tell an entire narrative of an investigation from start to finish. That's not necessarily been the approach here. Here it's been more of presenting summary material that Steve Ruby, the prosecutor, wants to have in front of the jury. Right. What we're getting from Laverty is not this narrative of this is what happened in my investigation. These are the things I found out. This is what I could imply from those things. What we're getting are lots of documents, lots of SEC filings, examination books from UBB. There's not really any compelling story to what Lafferty has to say. I personally, I don't think he was a great witness to close with. We don't have the emotional testimony that we got from Bill Ross, the ventilation specialist. We don't have the emotional testimony that we got from Goose Stewart, the miner who was underground the day that UBB exploded and knew a lot of people who died in the accident. We're not getting that emotion. And I'm just not sure that Lafferty is an effective way to get the jury on your side. He's the last person that you hear from in the prosecution's case. He's not getting that um, that reaction from the jury that these other witnesses got. In many cases, in many white-collar cases, there will not be this witness, this summary witness like Agent Lafferty, because records like this will be stipulated to by the defense. In this case, everything's been fought over. Every, the admissibility of almost every piece of evidence has been fought over, and, and it's come down to this, where Steve, can't, Steve Ruby, the prosecutor who's leading the charge and is putting Jim Lafferty on the stand, can't get these materials in front of the jury without going through this exercise. So there's a, there's a necessity to it, even if it's not the best drama in the courtroom. Um, so, Ashton, we thought that this was it for the prosecution case. But not the case. What happened? Yeah. Yet again, we thought this was going to be the day that the prosecution rested their case. But that's not what happened. The judge dismissed the jury around 3 o'clock today. Um, She's bringing that back in on Monday morning. And we heard some arguments over acquittal this afternoon. But basically, the reason that we're delaying until Monday is because the defense wants to use their own set of tapes, their own set of Don Blankenship phone call recordings. These Um, are, just to remind everybody, these are the, the... phone tapes that Don Blankenship made himself mm-hmm. of his activities in the time period we're talking about. Yes, yeah. That he, the prosecution used very effectively, I think. Yes. 
he created these recordings himself. And basically the argument is over the authentication. They have to bring the tapes in under somebody who had possession of the tapes. So they need FBI agent Lafferty to bring the tapes in. Um, the FBI agent is on the stand. He's the last prosecution witness. We can't just let him go and not decide whether or not they can use these tapes. So Judge Berger has to decide whether or not she'll allow some of these other tapes to be used by the defense first, because then the prosecution is going to make the defense use Lafferty to authenticate that they're really the tapes. Yeah, yeah. Whew. Okay. So basically, you know, the defense is arguing that the government had these tapes. The government provided the tapes to the defense. Why do we have to go through this process of authenticating them? Why can't we just use them? Basically, like like Mike said, nobody in this case is stipulating to anything. And so Steve Ruby wants them to prove and wants them to authenticate the tapes yet again. It just so, seems ridiculous to one in one sense that the but I guess there's a legal reason. This is why I'm bringing it up like this. As a layperson, they use these tapes. Mm-hmm. They said they're for real. They said you can trust them. And then now they're turning around and forcing the defense to jump through hoops to use the same set of tapes in the defense. Mike, is there a legal reason why it seems like every single, is there a strategy behind questioning every single little thing you can question, both by the defense and by the prosecution here? Yeah, I I think for the the strategy for the defense has been clear. They want this to be slow and long and drawn out and many things to be confused for the jury. Um, the, The tactics on Steve Ruby not admitting or not stipulating to the admission of these tapes is that the ultimate alternative, perhaps, for the defense would be to call Jim Lafferty in their case, which is an odd move for the defense to be calling an FBI agent. I don't think the judge is going to force him down that road. And I would also just say that the threshold issue also um, is whether or not Judge Berger is going to allow them to play these self-serving tapes in the, in the government case. And whether, well, whether she'll let them play these self-serving tapes, which are hearsay, they're out-of-court statements, whether she'll let them play them at all. And that's a big issue in this case, because it could impact the, the question of whether Don Blankenship testifies. If he can put on tapes that are his exculpatory statements, statements that tend to show his innocence, they're positive tapes for him, he, those tapes can't be cross-examined. And he may want to go down that road rather than taking the stand and being cross-examined by the government. If she doesn't let him play the tapes, it may tilt scales in, towards, in, in favor of him needing to testify to counteract the statements that the jury's already heard out of his mouth in the government's tapes. So we're already thinking about the defense and what it's going to do next. And as part of that, the defense is making an argument, something called Rule 29, um, that at this very point in the trial, the prosecution has failed to make its case and Don Blankenship should be acquitted. Ashton, what's, what's the argument? Basically, the defense is saying to the conspiracy count specifically that both the Fourth Circuit and the Supreme Court have ruled in the past that in order to prove conspiracy, you have to prove that an agreement existed and intent. And Eric Delinsky, the defense attorney that argued this point, said there are prior rulings that say just because he had knowledge of a conspiracy, just because he maybe approved of it, or maybe because he had a lack of concern, he didn't show any care over it, that doesn't mean that he had a desire to willfully commit violations and to defraud MSHA. He's saying there's not enough there. Courts have ruled that's not enough. Um, Delinsky also points out that, you know, Chris Blanchard is the government 
government's only link between Don Blankenship and what was actually going on in the mines. And again, Chris Blanchard was the the president of the mining group that operated the Upper Big Branch Mine. And what's that? What what specifically was that um, statement between Don Blankenship and Chris Blanchard? That that is that that link that they're trying to build on. Yeah. So the government's link is that MSHA MSHA inspectors showed up at UBB one day. Chris needed to take them into the mine. He called Don Blankenship and he said, hey, we've got this meeting, but now I've got to go underground, so I'm going to have to cancel. And Blankenship's response was, well, do the miners know or do the crews know that the MSHA inspectors are coming? And this goes back to that advanced notice that you can't give people underground notice that MSHA inspectors are on site. That's their link. But Delinsky is saying, well, if that's all you've got, that's not enough. Now, Mike, there's a long way... Those are obviously things that the defense are going to uh, case the defense is going to make coming up to the jury. But is there anything there that would suggest that that the judge is going to um, allow for an acquittal at this moment? Yeah, these motions are made at the close of of the government's case in essentially every case, uh, motion for judgment of acquittal. They're rarely granted, uh, and it's very likely here that the judge will say. That there are there are certainly issues for the jury. There, the jury will be instructed, but that she won't go to the point of saying that that the jury could not conclude that the government has met its burden of proof here. Um, and so it would be it would be very surprising if Judge Berger were to grant the defense motion. The other thing that came up in this Rule Twenty Nine motion involves the securities fraud. Going back to that again, um, Ashton, what's the defense saying about that? So they're basically saying that. When Massey, as a whole, wrote this statement, because there were multiple people who had their hands on it, when Massey wrote this statement that they did not condone safety violations, the investors already knew everything. They already knew about the explosion. They already knew about this long list of MSHA citations. They already knew that MSHA was investigating the accident, and MSHA had already accused Massey of willful violations. All that had already been reported. So basically, the defense is saying, well, you can't say that we lied to anyone. You can't say that Massey was fooling anybody because the information was already out there. The market already knew about it. And already priced it in. And additionally, uh, Don Blankenship was not the only person that had his hands on this statement, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a strong argument that came out in the cross-examination. John Poma testified to Blankenship's involvement in writing the security statement. But on the cross-examination, he really went through the steps that Our head of investor relations drafted the statement, and then it went to outside counsel, who we deal, who Massey dealt with on a regular basis when filing securities, securities exchange commissions filings. They reviewed it, sent it back to us. Our general counsel inside reviewed it. We then sent it to our PR professionals, and then Blankenship saw it and gave the final approval. To me, it's hard to say that Blankenship was the one twisting their arm and making them write that statement when it was already written in there, had gone through multiple people by the time it got to him. Maybe that's the case. Maybe he did. Maybe there was a phone call that happened in which he spoke to the investor relations guy and said, I need this to be in there. But the thing is, that hasn't come out in the case. The prosecution didn't present that. Mike. Yeah, and I would just add there that from a ju- from a closing argument standpoint, I think Ashton's absolutely right, which is that the defense has effectively established through cross-examination that by the time Don Blankenship saw the critical paragraph and the press release, it had been formed by investor relations types and lawyers, both inside and outside lawyers, to include the language that the government says is, is criminal. Um, but from a motion for a judgment of acquittal standpoint, 
Don Blankenship is charged with aiding and abetting the false statement, and the case law and the language in the United States Code that that charges that includes that charging language is extremely broad and applies to anyone who causes a criminal act to have taken place. And the government there can rely essentially on the fact that Don Blankenship approved the press release when he wrote with his handwriting his name and okay on the top of the press release before it went out. I mean, isn't this sort of thing spin that comes out of corporations every quarter? Really, if we're – I'll I'll just put it out there. If we are going to prosecute Don Blankenship for this sort of language, shouldn't there be a lot more corporate executives on trial as well? I agree, Scott. I think if if there are people in in industries, especially in highly regulated industries, that will be watching that charge very carefully, and there are inside lawyers and outside lawyers and crisis communications professionals who will be very, very cautious if that results in a conviction for two federal crimes. Ashton Mara is our reporter covering this for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Thank you, Ashton. Thank you. And thank you, Mike Hissom from a coal mine in Illinois. And he's an attorney with uh, Bailey and Glasser and a former assistant U.S. attorney. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks, Scott. And this has been Blankenship on Trial. Thanks for listening. Blankenship on Trial is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Our theme music is by Matt Jackfurt. See illustrations from the trial, daily updates, and more on our website, wvpublic.org. And make sure you follow us on Twitter for the latest, at Ashton Mara and at WVPublicNews. Thanks for listening. <laughs>